yeah, I definitely was concerned how I looked, how I presented myself to the world and to my children, my family, because I didn't want them to see cancer. One thing about cancer that we can all understand on a fundamental level is that it takes things from us. It can rob us of our health, our time, and in some ways, worst of all, our independence. On this episode, we're going to talk about the messy side of the condition, the parts that can be embarrassing for patients to bring up with even their closest confidants. Colostomy bags, catheters, and penis pumps will all be up for discussion as we speak to patients who've had their physiological function significantly impacted by cancer. And that's just the stuff that's under the hood. For many of the patients we've spoken to, cancer's effect on their outward physical appearance was one of the most difficult parts of the process. Now What? Your Cancer Support podcast is an NHS podcast series where you'll hear frank and honest accounts from over a dozen cancer patients about their experiences with a disease that at some point, directly or indirectly, affects us all. Consider them your peer support network. I'm your host, Julia Bradbury. In 2021, I became one of the 375,000 people who are diagnosed with cancer in the UK every year. I know firsthand what it's like to have your life suddenly upended by this disease and the havoc it can wreak on your body, mind and everything in between. I also know that with a little bit of luck and a lot of expertise, that surviving cancer isn't just possible, it's becoming more and more likely with every passing year. If you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you or someone you love has recently received a cancer diagnosis. No doubt you've got questions, and lots of them. Our hope is that this series can provide you with some answers. Our peers come from a wide variety of backgrounds. One thing that they all have in common? First-hand experience with cancer in its many shapes and forms. So think of us as your cancer support group, just in audio form. Today's topic of discussion, your new normal. For Chi, one of the most destabilising aspects of her cancer treatment was how much it sapped her energy. Because it's a roller coaster, you know, having cancer is a roller coaster because one day you can be feeling okay and happy, another day you've got no energy and you're zapped out, uh, and another day you can see the world, and other days everything's in a haze because I was in so much pain, I was, I was putting on a lot of morphine. I've always been the fit one. I was always the one that would be running around doing whatever, ride a bike, jumping up and down on tram- trampolines or whatever. I'd be there, kicking a ball, I'd be there type of thing. But I couldn't do anything. I just had no energy at all. is a very self-reliant person. So to suddenly find herself bedridden, constantly in pain and relying on others to bring her to hospital, well, it was a bitter pill to swallow. That was really, really tough because I'm so independent. I, I was the first one in my family that properly graduated and got a first job because everyone else was doing, you know, doing their masters or PhD. Being um, without my mum or my my siblings when I first came to the UK, 
um, it made me very independent. And so I, I, I didn't have them to look after me. I, I was always the one that did my own thing. So to have cancer and to start depending on someone was very, very difficult. After a course of radiotherapy and chemo to shrink her tumour, Chi then had to undergo major surgery. They cut out um, my anus and, and bomb area. And so I can't go to the toilet, uh, do number two, as normal. So I now have a hole in my belly and all my stool comes out of that into a bag. The hole in her belly that Chi is referring to is known as a stoma an opening on the abdomen that can be connected to either the digestive or urinary system to allow urine or faeces to be diverted out of your body. The stoma, I just could, when I first had it, uh, I could not look at it, I could not understand it, I could, it took me for so long, but they wouldn't let you out of the hospital until you had to manage it yourself. So of course I had to like manage it. Visually, it looks like a small pink circular piece of flesh sewn to your body. Sometimes they lie flat and sometimes they protrude. A pouch is worn on top. It's estimated there are roughly 180,000 people in the UK living with a stoma. And, you know, you replace that every, every, every time uh, that gets full or when it needs to be done. And it's, it's like having a, a, a baby uh, that you have to change nappy with. I was really initially uh, quite hesitant in it, unless I was squirmish, uh, because it felt like, you know, aliens. You know, when you see the film Aliens and there's a little animal that pops out of your belly and, in you, and I remember when I was a kid and I saw that film and it was like, oh, no. For many people, changes to the body like those she experienced can bring about unwanted and overwhelming emotions, including grief, anger, uncertainty and feelings of alienation from our own bodies. These feelings will ebb and flow across time. But really, it changes your life because it's like, you know, you only have to do it like for an hour, once every couple of days and you're, you're done. You don't have to like mess around with poo. And when your life post-surgery does become your new normal, there can often be a desire to push back against people's well-meaning but potentially coddling treatment because there's so many people that will want to see you and go, oh, poor you, you know, you're so brave. I hate that. You know, I'm not brave. I'm, I, I'm just the poor person that's got this and I have to get through it. It's not brave. It, it's like I have to get through it or die. But you can't say that because that would upset them. These days, Chi has come to embrace life with a stoma and all that comes with it. It's like a whoopee cushion. It will go off at the most least likely time you want it to go. And, and it just goes even though it does occasionally cause her problems at airports. They're patting you down, and of course, I've got a cl colostomy, and it sounds like a crisp packet. See? It sounds like a crisp packet on my belly, yeah? So they're patting me, go, what's that? As though I'm, I'm, I'm the shoe bomber or something, right? And, and I go, poo. And then they look at me like, what? And so I flash them. And they go, oh, okay. And then because I've got a little window there, then I have to like split it up so they can see it's my stoma and poo. It's like, really? Okay, fine. If you want to see that, fine. You know, but you show them, you flash it and you're done. Things like that. It's just like, it's hilarious. It's so comical. If someone has a stoma and is a comedian, you can have a whole show just on that. 
One thing Chi stresses is how vital it is that we remove the stigma of diseases like bowel cancer, because when our illnesses affect things like our continence, it's understandable why patients might feel a sense of embarrassment or shame and find it difficult to say everything they want to say. But I think every single cancer is very difficult to talk about because it's, it's very personal for every single person. But poo is, is one of the bigger ones that, you know, people don't like to talk about because it's messy, because it affects a, a lot of your life. And it's a, it's a lot of poo talk, really. I've always been quite a practical person. Uh, and I've always looked at things uh, and, and, and seen what I can reasonably achieve rather than complain about what I can't. And I've always been the sort of person who said, how do I play the cards that fate has dealt me rather than complaining that I haven't got better cards? For Jad, an experienced journalist, broadcaster and these days author, destigmatizing illnesses has always been a major part of his career. I produced a documentary for Channel 4 for Dispatches called uh, AIDS, The Unheard Voices. And it was about AIDS and it was in the middle of the, of the, the AIDS crisis. And what, what we were doing was talking about how extreme the attitudes were over, over AIDS with television advertisements telling us that you'd get AIDS from, from the sixth person uh, who, you, who you'd had sex with and that kind, of, that kind of business and that you shouldn't be sharing your toothbrush with a drug addict and other kinds of really weird, weird stuff and the idea that the only difference between HIV and AIDS was time. And so what we tried to do was, uh, was attack a lot of those ideas that HIV equals death and move towards the proposition, which at this time was very controversial, that HIV was only one aspect of AIDS. And we were giving hope to a lot of people as well, a lot of people in the gay community for, for, for whom a diagnosis of having antibodies against HIV was considered a death sentence. Jad learned that he had prostate cancer following a routine blood test with his GP which revealed an elevated level of PSA, or prostate-specific antigen. And so, of the four tests that I had to have, um, I had clearly failed the first one. I'd failed the test of blood. And so I was sent for the next test, which is the test of finger. Uh, and um, so there, a consultant uh, probed my bum and uh, there was no problem. And so as far as I was concerned, I'd, I'd, I'd passed the second test. But I was sent on to the third test, which was the MRI test. And they put me into some kind of a high-tech white coffin uh, with a lot of noise. And uh, they de detected that, yes, there was something in my prostate uh, and they were going to have to have a, a closer look. And the final one was the biopsy. I think they took 12 different samples um, while they had me in stirrups and uh, they, they had a, a sonar device up my bum, which was um, an interesting experience. Uh, and they played music. I, I, I guess that these uh, biopsies are, are normally done on older guys. And so uh, they, they, they picked the sort of music we'd like and they thought that we'd like Queen and Police and Genesis and that sort of thing. So that, that's the kind of music they played. 
I would have made a, a different musical choice myself. Jad was presented with a number of different treatments and ultimately opted to undergo surgery. One of the numerous risks associated with the procedure was the potential loss of sexual function. I did go in to see the surgeon and, among other things, I said because I wanted the surgeon to know me and to know what I was hoping for from the treatment. I said, I value sex very much. I have about a climax once a day. And so sex is extremely important to me. My wife was with me and she, she was uh, obviously in, a, in agreement to the, uh, about this. I realised that I'm talking to someone who's got the option of, of spending three hours on my surgery or four hours on my surgery. I'm having a nerve-sparing surgery and, and I want him to know that that really does matter to me and that I'm going to use those functions uh, which he's going to preserve for me. I was definitely going to lose some of the nerves around the prostate, but the nerves are closely connected to sexual activity, to erection and so on, and it was very important to me to, to uh, have as many of those nerves preserved as, as was possible. Jad's surgery was a success, but the return journey to full function would be a long one. Recovery was, was pretty grim. Um, it was a miserable two weeks to start off with, um, which were because I had a catheter in, so that's, that's pretty unpleasant. A catheter is a flexible tube inserted into the penis and used to empty the bladder and collect urine in a drainage bag. There's extreme constipation, uh, very painful, um, and uh, of course there, there, there were some surgical wounds uh, as well and a very poor appetite. And so we were told just uh, keep eating small, frequent meals. That was all pretty miserable. The nights were hard as well, trying to sleep with the catheter in. But basically, it was um, two weeks which were pretty grim. And then I was back into the hospital and uh, the catheter had to come out and they had to make sure that my urinary function was actually working. Amongst other things, that process involved a visual inspection of Jad's urine to make sure it was the right colour. So uh, the nurse was telling me, we want to see urine here. Uh, we don't want to see red wine and we don't want to see rosé wine. We want to see white wine, <laughs> which is to, to a wine drinker. This, was, this was, was an attractive way of putting it. Jad passed the P-test and was sent home to rest for the next six weeks. After which time I can return to an exercise regime and I can um, start using the pump on the penis, which uh, uh, helps to restore it to its, its previous activity. The penis and, and the apparatus of erection has been, have, been, have been damaged by the surgery and some of the nerves uh, are, are missing. So we're going to have to get new nerves to take on new functions and for the blood supply to get through that scar tissue. And so it's very important to use the penis pump as, as soon as possible and to do what I did, what I was asked to do, which was to spend at least 10 minutes a day on, on, on the pump um, and to try and get an erection a day or to actually get an erection a day. It can be tedious, it can even be painful, but they work in the end. Uh, that you come out of it at the, in the end, almost as good as you were when you went in. Another potential side effect of the surgery was incontinence. 
that's one thing people need to know is that you have to learn how to piss and you can you have to relearn how to piss i should say it's all based on the uh, pelvic floor muscles and doing these kegel exercises as they're called so after the operation i was issued with um uh, these nappies adult nappies uh, which uh, i wore uh, diligently for for about a month but i'm glad to say i, I didn't need them there's a certain amount of dribbling but uh, it, there wasn't gross incontinence in my case which was great and the dribbling and that problem uh, declined um, as, uh, as, as, as the months went on. That being said, whenever he goes somewhere new the first thing that Jad checks on is where the nearest facilities are just to be on the safe side. Uh, speaking of getaway plans I had better leave you now unless there's anything else you've got. When he had questions and concerns, Jad took comfort from online forums where not just men like him, but their wives and partners posted messages of advice and encouragement. I've been looking at the Prostate UK discussion board and so there, there are patients and patients' wives uh, who talk about their experiences and, and I found those things very helpful and particularly in terms of sexual recovery, because you you have to learn how to urinate and learn how to copulate. You have to relearn how to do those things. And so there's something of a recovery period. And it was helpful to be talking to other people or to be reading the comments of other people and and adding to them uh, where they've gone through those kind of experiences. From catheters to colostomy bags, our focus has, so far, been below the belt. But for the last section of today's episode, we're going to be chatting about keeping up appearances. Specifically, how cancer and its effect on how we present ourselves to the world can turn into a battleground for some people. I didn't want to look like a cancer patient. For Wendy who contracted breast cancer in 2018, her appearance was a vital part of her identity. I've always taken pride in how I look, you know, how I dress um, and everything else. And I think that comes from the entertainment side of, of things. Wendy is an accomplished singer and performing has always been a big part of her life. Over the course of several decades in the music business, she's taken bows on stages up and down the country. And she always made sure to look the part for the crowd. Nowadays, she helps others prepare for an audience of a different kind, in her role as a teacher-trainer. I don't want to look gaunt because I've seen cancer patients, whether it's you, you've worried yourself into that state or because of the treatment you just can't eat. So I started to make a plan of how I wanted to look. But Wendy quickly learned that how she looked wouldn't always necessarily be up to her. Which sort of went through the window a bit once they started pumping the steroids in me because you just end up with this moon face. And of course, Wendy's focus on her appearance wasn't just about her own sense of identity and self-confidence. It was an outward indicator to her loved ones about how her fight with cancer was going. I had one brother, he did not look at me for a whole year my youngest brother, and because we're a very close family, but he couldn't look at me. Because the one thing he said to me, mum's just died and now you're gonna die. 
Wendy's mother had passed away suddenly the year before her diagnosis. I had felt differently about myself when mum passed. So this was like a double whammy. So I would look at myself and could I see me? Because I was looking at the future, the very near future. My hair's going to go, my eyebrows are going to go, you know, my whole shape is going to change. One of Wendy's main points of concern was her hair and how it would be affected by chemotherapy. Because in my culture, and if we look back into slavery time, why hair was so important for black women especially, it's a bonding thing. You know, the whole grooming the hair and everything. So it's an integral part of my culture. So you don't cut your hair. During her chemotherapy sessions, she'd wear what's known as a cold cap, a hat whose cooling effect reduces blood flow to the scalp, restricting the amount of chemotherapy medication that reaches this area. This helps to prevent hair loss. Through the, every chemotherapy that I had, I used it. But I think it was halfway through and I just thought, you know something, embrace this. And I once heard Maya Angelou spoke about seeing you, seeing your face, seeing you. And I remember just getting the clippers out. My daughter had come down for half term. I says, could you do me a favor? I says, I want you to shave my head. She had shaved her head and she just looked so incredibly beautiful. She's an amazing, beautiful woman. And I just thought, I'm going to shave my head. I want to see me. And she says, mom, are you sure? I says, yeah, I want it gone. Let me see what I look like. And it was just incredible to see me for the first time without the hair and, and the makeup and everything else. I saw me. I could actually look in my eyes and just see me. When it came to her body, that was something else Wendy was keen to preserve. I always felt good about my body. I had double G breasts. <laughs> you know, I had a really beautiful, curvaceous figure. But as we've seen several times in this series, cancer can cause our priorities to quickly change. And when Wendy's cancer returned after an initial lumpectomy, she told the surgeon in no uncertain terms what to do. I'm not going to go through this a third time so you can give me a double mastectomy because they were going to give me a mastectomy anyway on the right side because there's nothing else they could have offered. And I said, then you take the other one off because I'm not, because they said to me, you know, maybe three years from now I could develop in the other breast or not. And I says, well, I ain't taking that chance. So I had both of them off. So I totally looked different from up top. My whole body, my torso just feels as if it's square. Life post-surgery has been a major adjustment for Wendy. But each day I'm learning about me. I'm learning about my body. I can't even look at my body because I just feel totally disfigured. But I'm, I'm trying to learn to embrace and love this. My son, um, he said to me, Mum, you've been in a war. And as all wars, there are wounds that you, you know, you have to look at. I wrote it down. It was just so beautiful what, you know, he had said to me a few weeks ago. 
many patients will have to adapt to new ways of doing things after surgery, like living with a stoma or contending with physical impairments, such as loss of sexual function. Both physical therapy and emotional support are equally important when it comes to adjusting to our new normal. It's also important to remember that if you're a cancer patient's loved one, there may be a point where they simply would like you to treat their new normal as just that. On the next episode of Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast, our topic of discussion will be palliative care and end-of-life planning. She gave me five to 15 years. So I said I'll take the 15. Now What? Your Cancer Support Podcast is an NHS podcast produced by What's the Story Sounds. It's hosted by me, Julia Bradbury. For more information on the topics discussed in today's episode, as well as links to additional resources, please check out our show notes. This series was created by the leading cancer specialists at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital and their patients, whose personal testimony you'll hear on this and every other episode of the podcast. We're beyond grateful for their contributions. The peers who featured on this episode are Chi, Jad and Wendy. This episode was produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. Executive producers are Daryl Brown, Sophie Ellis, Stephanie Fraser, Naomi Good, Zainab Noor, Jessica Nyman and Julia Tadeo. Special thanks to Placida Ojinaka, Abiola Coca, Evan Russell and Guy's Cancer Charity. <laughs>